Hey everybody, Adam Stott here. Thanks for checking out my podcast, Business Grow Secrets. You're absolutely in the right place. This podcast is going to reveal to you all of the secrets that you've been looking to discover that are going to allow you to cure your cash flow problems, attain more clients, bring in more leads for your business, and create systems and processes that give you the growth that you want. You are going to discover the business growth secrets you have been looking for that I've used to sell over 50 million pounds worth of products and services on social media and help clients everywhere to grow their businesses on the mark. So let's get started on the Business Growth Secrets podcast. Look, we've got a, a fantastic, fantastic guy coming up today. Um, you know, someone that I've met a few times many, many years ago. I watched him on the program Secret Millionaire, where he went in, and he's going to tell you about that, um, about becoming, uh, going on the TV show Secret Millionaire. He's written an amazing book called Failure Breeds Success. I've got three of these to give away. So those of you that are the most engaged will get one of those, or whoever gives the best question at the end will get one of those. You know, Mike, uh, Mike Green's going to be our, our next guest. Mike has had some massive successes in business. He's written this book, Failure Breeds Success. He's had ups and downs. He's going to come and share all about that. You know, he was uh, somebody that went out and bought 238 Morrison stores and did a a, a turnaround on those um, and, and led that. He's somebody that has built very recently hundreds and hundreds of houses in the property markets. He's been very successful in property. He's had some great growth in business. And he has not started in a place where he's had a silver spoon put in his mouth. In his own words, he started in a place of abject poverty. It was his own words, where he had a a, a big struggle coming into life. And he really believes in the power of self-belief and confidence and he's going to come and share with you some great tools, some techniques. We're going to hear about a bit of his story to really inspire you all to new heights. You know, thank you for coming, Mike. Really, really excited about this interview because I know that you've had quite a, a career, um, very expansive career, and really want to get into the depths of that. We had a really good chat and you talked <coughs> about, you know, where you started from. So I'd like to go all the way back before you've built businesses, bought businesses, sold businesses, built houses, done all this cool stuff you've done and take you all the way back to where did you start from? You know, what was it like for you from the beginning in terms of growing up, learning about business and going on this journey? Yeah. The poverty thing, it's interesting. When you're in poverty, you don't realise you're in poverty because that's your normal. People look back to you, oh, you were really brought up rough. And, you know, I remember being in a caravan and anyone ever spent time in a caravan? Um, and the bunk beds. So I've got two brothers and two sisters with me at the time and we'd be top and tail in those little tiny bunk beds that were only about this wide anyway. Uh, you know, I loved that time. But it taught me a lot. And then we were so excited when my mum got a house. And to me, there was nothing wrong with the fact that I shared a bed with two brothers. And people say, do you mean a bedroom? And I say, no, I shared a bed with two brothers till I was 11. And then I shared a bedroom until I left home. In fact, I've never had my own bed because I left home to live with my wife, who we've been together 35 years this year. So um, she's another great person. But I look back and I went to school primarily because that was where I'd get a cooked meal. And it was a tough environment. But I I got awarded an honorary doctor of education for stuff I've done with schools and universities. And I wanted to do that because my school was once called a demonized depository for social waste. And um, (laughs) Harpreet was talking about these labels. And I I remember when I got awarded the honorary doctorate, I met this woman who, the lady who said it, believe it or not, was head of curriculum for Cambridge University. And she should know better. Uh, And I told her that in no uncertain terms. But, you know, the labels, I remember Les Brown talking in um, Live Your Dreams about when he was younger, he was given a label in America, and it was a legal label at the time uh, that that was, um, what was it called? It Slight brain fog here. He was uh, educationally illiterate, something like that. And a teacher came in, a supply teacher, and asked a question. uh, And he said, I'm sorry, miss, I'm, I'm educationally illiterate. And she threw the board rubber at him and said, never, ever, ever accept someone else's label of you. 
In fact, don't even accept your own label because often you're harder on yourself than you need to be. Only ever accept stuff that is positive or is an indication of where you can be. Uh, and so, you know, I said this to this lady, but that, that label thing, that wanting to do better, be better, made me... Um, I knew that we were poor, you know, we had Wellington boots because that covered all weather, which is okay, but it's a bit embarrassing in the summer when you're going to school in, in Wellington boots and so on. And, um, but we had a mother, I had a mother who loved us, loved us. And, you know, if you can give your kids that, then that's a hell of a start. Um, and my motivation, we were talking about motivation, and it's a cliche, but I'm sure you've heard it, but it's worth hearing some things again and again and again. And if you break the word motivation down, it's what's your motive for action? Motivation, what's your motive for action? And I want to tell you, I tell a lot of people this. People are saying things like, give me some positive motivation, Mike. I, I just need some motivation. I'll be okay once I'm motivated. I believe, and I truly believe this, and I'm a behavioral profiler as well now, but... Um, motivation is at least 70% negative. We are more driven by what we don't want or by moving away from where we don't want to be than we are sometimes pulled. So if you think your motivation is to own a Ferrari or, or whatever it is, when you have a really tough week, tough month, tough year, you'll end up telling yourself, I don't really need a Ferrari, you know, Skoda's fine really, isn't it? It gets you from A to B. Um, but if you do something like I did, I want to buy my mum a house. I want her to never worry about money again. One, I can be more motivated for someone else than I can for myself. And two, I wanted to always not be in a position where I couldn't give my kids what they needed. Didn't want to spoil them, but one of my daughters had scoliosis, and I remember they saying she was 16, and they said she needs this operation, she needs it soon. And it was right just before GCSEs. And I remember saying to her, Rosie, you can have it now or we can wait a few months, but it's, it's at a point where it was pressing on her lungs and organs. And she said, I'll do it now, Dad. I said, yeah, but you're going to be on your back for many months probably. And she said, I can, I can study. I can do my, my, my revision whilst I'm lying down. I thought, yeah, that's my girl kind of thing. But it was really nice to be able to say, who's the best doctor within a couple of hours of us? It was a guy at the Royal Nuffield. How much does it cost? 52 grand. I paid it within an hour and she had it the following Tuesday. To be able to do that. So when you think motivation is all about positive, Think about what if your mum, your neighbour, your daughter, your son, somebody close to you needed that. Wouldn't it be great to have the money in the bank to say, not a problem, and write that check? And so, you know, if you think, I need motivation, have a word with yourself, you know, <laughs> because we've all got people we would do that for. And that's what life is really about, you know, is finding that burning desire that is either going to push you or pull you to be all that you can be. And once you make a decision, it's real quick, really quick. You, you can go from where you are to a million pounds easily within a year. Anybody can, and I mean anybody. Which is pretty awesome stuff, right? You know, some great, great advice there. So after we've been through this process of, you know, growing up in, in that environment, when did you first get into, to, what was your first foray into business? What's the, one of the first, first things that you've done or what was your first experiences in that way? Yeah. Or building well, it, skills as it, well? It perhaps? probably wasn't business. It was probably work and money. So even as, you know, at seven or eight, I'd help my brother on his paper round, then I got my own paper round, then I got an evening paper round, then we helped the milkman after we'd done our paper round, and then we went potato picking and car washing, and I found the harder I worked, the more money I earned. And, uh, and then I was a paper boy, and the, the, I talk about it on Secret Millionaire, actually, a guy called Les Brown, who um, sadly died last year, but he was a really hard ex-military guy, but he was the manager of the newsagent. And one day he said to me, son, go and get a shirt and tie. I said, why do I need a shirt and tie? He said, because I want you to work on Saturdays. I said, what, me? And he was just offering me the chance to work on the tills, but it was the first male role model I'd had that said, he said, yeah, I think you'll be good. I thought, he believes in me. And if he believed in me, then he's a manager. I must believe in me. And then I got into retail and I, got, I went from being uh, a Saturday lad to a trainee manager, to an assistant manager, to a regional manager, to opening 300 stores in a year for a company called Circle K. But then I realized I was still trading time for money. It was a one-to-one -one ratio. So if I really wanted to earn big money and earn you know, beyond my wealth or needs ever, I needed to get into business. And so then I gave up a career and I went into a pizza franchise, 
which I lost actually. And my wife and I, when I was 27, became homeless, uh, bankrupt. We lost my house and we delivered pizzas for a few years on the back of mopeds. And uh, God knows why she stayed with me because only a few months, <laughs> yeah, only a few months before um, I talked her out of a really good job to come and work with me in this thing, you know. And uh, I remember once trying to teach her how to drive the mopeds. And uh, I said, you, just, you know, you get on it and just do this and then you release the clutch. She went straight through a plate glass window of the shop <laughs> next door. And, and I said, God, I've killed her. And she got up and dusted herself down kind of thing. But, you know, when you find someone who's the right person, work at it, work at it, work at it. And the journey, however tough it is, whether you lose everything, if you've got the person you want to be with, it doesn't matter. And so we've had this rocky ride of loads of money and, and lost the money and got tight. And I mean, touch wood, luckily, for the last uh, decade or more, we've never had to worry about money. You know, and I don't know where everyone is, but the little sayings of being able to go to the best restaurants and choose from left to right rather than choosing from the price or going shopping with your kids or, or your wife or, or yourself and thinking, I like that, without having to look at the price label to decide if you like that. You know, those small things make a massive difference to your self-esteem. And bit by bit, you build this kind of protection around you that no one can break through once you realize from little wins, you get bigger wins. You know, and I love the saying that big shots are just little shots that keep shooting. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. That is yeah. so true. So the pizza franchise, so you had this pizza thing, it, it went wrong. What happened next? Well, it didn't go wrong. It, well, it did go wrong. <laughs> but, and this was a great lesson for me. Now, everything that happens is a lesson, okay? And um, we, we did really well um, very quickly, and we pushed the turnover massively. And the guy who was running that particular franchise said, oh, Mike, you know, you should open the second store. We've got this opportunity to take a site. Uh, we were up in Manchester. He said, we've got to take a site in Chorley and then a site in Blackpool. So, oh, great. And I said to him, John, I haven't got the cash flow for it. And he said, don't worry. We'll support you. We'll give you a rent-free period. I said, oh, I don't know. You know, it's all money's tight. He said, don't worry. Don't worry. We'll look after you. And then things got tight for him. And one of the things you'll realize is you are not someone else's priority. The only person whose priority you are is you. And if you are beholden to someone else, they can pull that rug at any time. And so he called in that rent and he called in that money and that took the business under. And that's why, you know, I've said ever since the various businesses I've been involved in and I've invested in dozens. Uh, I, at any point in time, I have about 30 board roles uh, and I have non-execs or, or business that I mentor. Um, so I'm very close to those businesses. And I say the person who most annoys me in all those businesses is the FD. But the person who's <laughs> the most important person in every business is the FD. Because the numbers never lie and cash will kill you if you haven't got it. So, you know, don't let the numbers kill you and learn that shit. Learn it, you know, get someone who really knows that shit. And, and you know, don't, one of my great mentors, he said, Mike, he said, do you know the Ten Commandments? I said, well, I get the gist of it, but I don't know them, you know, all off by heart. So he said, well, they're all about personal behavior and personal ways of being. He said, but there should be one for business, the Eleventh Commandment. He said, and if there was, it'd be thou shalt not kid thyself. <laughs> and uh, sometimes when it comes to money, we kid ourselves. You know, we can achieve anything, but you need a plan. You need written goals. You need to know who you need along that journey, what skills you've got to acquire, or what people can bring those skills if you can't. You need to put that into a plan, and then you need to work as hard as you can possibly work until that plan is delivered. Thou shalt not kid thyself. <laughs> yeah, and those numbers get you real, right? Which is absolutely... They do. And, yeah. and actually, once you kind of burst through whatever ceiling you've set, it is just a number. I mean, that's, that's the thing. We, we tend to think I'm a 30 grand a year person, a 50 grand a year person, a 100 grand a year person. The only person setting that level is you or the people that you're working for that you allow to tell you that's your level. Um, once you break through that, you start to see a big open sky of, 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 of growth that you could push for. Amazing. So... On your journey, we did the pizza stuff. What, what happened next, Mike? I'm really interested to know. Yeah, so um, it, 
we, we drove back from Manchester, we had a minivan and it was so knackered that you could see, there was a hole in the floor, you could see the road passing below you as you were <laughs> driving it. And we had everything we owned, which wasn't a lot, in the back of this van. I went to my mum's and I said, Mum, can we stay for you a little bit? She said, yeah, but I haven't got much space now, Mickey, kind of thing. And uh, so I rang a mate and I told him how terrible it was. He's my, he was my best man, our best man at, uh, at my wedding, still my best mate today. And he said, look, he's, he had a pizza place still. He said, you can come and work with, with us. And that's where the pizza deliveries come from after that. And he said, you come work with us. He said, you can live with us for one month. But with your first month's salary, you're going to use that to put a deposit on a rental place and then you're on your own because I love you, but not that much kind of thing. Uh, and what happened was I, we were delivering pizza, so it was kind of lunchtime through to evening. And it was, we were working as hard as we can to try and get some money together and dealing with the, the psychology of it, really, because it, it affected my wife more than me, but she was often doing the, which of these bills are we going to pay? You know, and... Uh, uh, are we eating potatoes again? You know, what, all that stuff, it affected her greatly. I had this kind of, yeah, it's just money. I've lived without, I can go without, you know, all my life I've gone without, I can do that. Um, but I saw that and I thought that was unfair for me to rope her into that. So we worked together and we were in it together and we didn't have the internet then, but we had the library and I started going down the library in the mornings when we weren't working and then I'd see a book by Richard Branson or Les Brown or people like this and I'd realise they all failed. They'd all had failure, and that's why I insisted the book was called Failure Breed Success. But, you know, um, they'd failed but gone through it. And I thought, so I have failed, but I'm not a failure. That's just an event on my journey. It isn't my destination. And actually, when uh, I was talking to Adam about one of my mentors, and he would make me climb mountains, cross oceans, walk on burning coals, different things, which I thought was crazy, but he wouldn't mentor me unless I did what he said. In fact, he would say, I'd say, Stuart, the business is growing like crazy. I haven't got time to uh, do that. And he said, okay, stay broke then. Oh, Stuart, don't be like that. He said, you think you know everything, Mike. He said, if I was teaching you to cross a raging river, he said, and I gave you all the skills you needed, everything you needed to go to, get, to know to get from this side to that side, and you only followed me 90%, what would happen? I said, I suppose I'd drown. He said, but every time I tell you to do something, you do 90% and then you think it's okay because you've done most of what I asked you. When you fail, you're going to blame me. (laughs) But if you're not going to take my advice and do everything, stay broke. And so I'd I'd learned from him and he would um, make me do some of these things. And and like climbing the mountains, crossing the oceans and, and things like that. And along the way, what I realized was everything I've ever been good at, everything we've, anyone's ever been good at, if I can be blunt, they were shit at to start with. When you learned to walk and you saw your parents walking and your older siblings walking, you kind of wanted to walk. The desire was so big. And you got up, fell down, got up, fell down, got up, fell down, got up, fell down. You didn't think, sod this, I'm clearly not meant to walk. I'm going to stay on my ass and shuffle along. You all got to walking because your desire was big enough to keep on keeping on. And then maybe riding a bike, you fell off, you fell off, you fell off. So I took this language with my girls. I'd say, I need to teach you to fall off so you can learn to ride. And it was just a change of words, a change of psychology, a change of focus. So that when they did fall off, I didn't want them to fall off. But they then just knew, oh, that was the first step of learning to ride the bike, if you like. And yet sometimes we become adult and we forget that everything we were ever good at, we were bad at to start with. And it was the keeping on, keeping on, the learning new skills, the watching other people that can do it, and then trying again, trying again. You can do anything if you want to and are willing to put the work in and get other people around you to help you on that journey. Yeah. What happened before we, you know, on, on the journey next, what business did you move into? Yeah, so I worked with, uh, with my mate, ended up, he said a couple of months, it was a couple of years, and I kind of rebuilt my self-esteem, if you like. We, we kind of got stronger, and we were doing sort of side, side hustles and things that people talk about. Like, we, there was a guy who used to buy and sell auction lots, and we'd take all the crap and then car boot it and take 50-50. So we started to do this, and then... Um, uh, I decided to, to get back into corporate as a way to get more training to take me to a different level. So I applied to this American consultancy called Strasburger, who were convenience consultants, because I'd done the, the Saturday Lad, the Paperboy sort of thing. And um, we became advisors to Shell in the UK. And I was good at that because I was willing to work hard. I liked retail. I liked learning how to sell more stuff and the psychology behind selling. So along the way, I'd read a lot of books. 
And then I got to a point where I became a store opener, and then I had a team of store openers, and we opened all these shops and so on. Everything I got into, I tried to reach and widen the network. So it's like, I don't just want to run this. I want to speak to other people that are doing this and learn. What did you do? How did you do this? What, I, I'm having trouble with this. You have a trouble. And actually, we're scared to ask competitors often, but they're more than happy to chat often. And, and you know, might at first think that you're, you're, you're going against it. Anyway, I joined something called the Association of Convenience Stores. I became the youngest ever chairman in 100-year history because they were born out of the British Independent Grocers Association. I was the only person in their history to ever be chairman twice. And I was on the board for 20 years, representing 33,500 small stores uh, in the UK. And then I got connected to the same in America, Australia, New Zealand. And, and I started to learn a lot because I was talking to retailers all the time. Why do you do that? That's great. That's... And what Strasburger taught me as a consultancy was really interesting. They grew up as a Strasburger family in the Midwest, literally cowboy towns. And they had bars and proper old cowboy bars that you go in, you know, kick your heels and order some grog or whatever. But prohibition came in. And with prohibition, they couldn't sell any alcohol. So a lot of their bars started to become retail outlets. You know, they would be letting the fruit and veg person sell and the butcher sell and they were trading. And that was the first growth of small stores in America. And uh, Tommy Strasberger was just uh, inspired me massively. And what he said is, but you can have a consultancy with no knowledge. And I thought, because he was already a multimillionaire, I thought, how can you do that? He said, well, if you go in this shop and you start talking to somebody, he said, and you say, this is a great shop. You know, I love the way you've done that. What made you do that? And, he, and they, they'll teach you something and say, oh, and you know, what's the best thing you've ever done to grow your sales? And they'll tell you something. And people love talking about their success. He said, when you go to the second shop, you've got a few tips you could give them, but you ask them and, and, they, and they give you a few more tips. He said, by the time you've been in 20 shops, you'll know more than any individual retailer does about retailing. And I went into thousands of shops. And so I was head of shops marketing for Conoco in the UK, which was jet petrol stations. And uh, first year I went there, we grew the whole business. We had um, 600 independently owned stores and 200 um, managed stores. And I grew their retail business by 39%. And it's like 3% is good, 4% is good. It was transformational just by learning some of that stuff and sharing it on. And then one of the consultants I got in, because however good you get, you're still learning. I was at the back scribbling, making notes, listening to Harpreet because every day is a school day. You know, I always am looking to, oh, that's a good idea. I love that quote. I like that concept. That's a good way of framing that, that behavior. And so I then um, got a consultant in called Jeff Harris, who was a, uh, based in London, a, a retail consultant. And he's quite a quirky character, but he'd come in and he'd, he'd do research on our shoppers. And he'd say, Mike, last year, 17% of your shoppers did this. And this year, it's 19%. I said, yeah, so what? What does that mean? Is that good? Is that bad? And I said, he'd go through all these stats and I'd say, Jeff, I don't want the numbers. I want to know what that means. How can I use that to grow the business? And he said, stop moaning at me. Come and work for me instead. And I said, I'm only going to come work for you if I can buy the business because I don't really want to work with you. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why he let me buy it. Anyway, but, and then I met the guy who was his, his number two, Tom uh, Fender, is my business partner in that business, and we bought that business off him. Now, he'd been 37 years in that business, and he'd, he had a good living, you know, the Porsche and different things. He had a good living. Tom and I grew at 18,000% and grew it into America, Australia, New Zealand, 18 European countries. And then I sold it to William Reed, who owned the biggest... Uh, print magazine for the trade uh, in 2012. And I thought I'd never work again. Uh, I didn't need to. But I remember my brother-in-law, and sadly, uh, he was an ex-squaddy and straight-talking. I'd been in Australia for a couple of weeks, and uh, I got home, and it was a family thing, and he said, in his proper squaddy style, you're a shit dad, you know, Mike. <laughs> so I said, fuck you, Don. You know, what do you mean? He said, well, you're never here. And I said, I was kind of I learned now to find the space between stimulus and response before I answer. But, um, <laughs> and I said, fuck you, Don. I said, you're here all the time. You only work 40 hours a week. But you know what? You come home, open a four-pack, sit on the sofa, watch Sky Sports, and ignore your kids. When I am home, I'm 100% home. There is not a second of that time I'm not with my wife, with my daughters, only there for them kind of thing. But it did make me think. And after I'd sold the business, I, you know, you look back and I pondered a little bit. And... You know how you, someone says something and you think, if I could have that conversation again, this is how I'd respond better. And um, my response, if I'd have had it again, would be, if you say I'm a shit dad, or what would you, what's more important to you, family or business, which, which was essentially what he was saying to me, I would say family. That's why we're doing it. 
But if I had the time again, what I'd say is that question is like asking me, what arm do I want to cut off? And I'd choose my left arm because I'm right-handed. Okay, but why would I want to cut a, an arm off? And I said again, and I've used it since, I need both arms to be the whole me. And actually, I think I'm a better dad by teaching them work ethic, teaching them how to keep motivated, to goal set, to learn, to grow. And so I don't want to cut any arm off. I'm a whole person by doing business, entrepreneurialism, being there for my wife and kids, my community. I'm uh, chairman for the Chamber of Commerce, which is voluntary role in my area to help grow business. I'm personally raising a million pounds for Cambridge Children's Hospital. After Secret Millionaire, I raised 100,000 for 100 charities in 100 days. So to me, it's kind of personal, family, community, country, and it goes like that. But it is a hierarchy of things that I want to do to be whole. And on the bottom of my book, I shamelessly stole a Stephen Covey strapline, which was to live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. That's his vision. He said, I want to live, I want to really live. I want to go out and see the world. I want to experience stuff. If people are jumping off cliffs into the ocean, I want to try that stuff. And he said, I want to really live. He said, I want to love, I want to walk into a room and assume everyone in that room is amazing and gorgeous and wonderful as opposed to what we often do is walk in and think, she looks miserable, he looks like so-and-so, you know, uh, and we judge people <laughs> negatively. I want to love them until they prove to me why I shouldn't love them. So to live, to love, to learn. Covey learned 10 languages in 10 years. Couldn't read and write them, but he could speak them fluently. And he said, but they're all things that you do in your lifetime. He said, the real measure is what's going to happen in 10 years, 50 years, 100 years. And so to me, if in 100 years, and somebody had built this, big family wealth, ongoing generational wealth. And a friend said to them, where did your family get all this from? If they could turn around and say, well, I don't know, but my great-great-granddad met this guy called Mike Green, who helped him and gave him some tips. And he went out and built his own business. You know, that to me is legacy. And that to me drives me every single day. So not, don't just set goals for what you can achieve this year, three years, five years. Set goals that are gonna be 100 years beyond you because that will make you learn more. That will drive you at a different level to be more and set the things in place that will carry on long after you're gone. And I knew at that point when, I, when this sort of started to come together, I will work till the day I die. But I do prioritize family when I'm setting my diary first. So I think we should mention The Secret Millionaire. Great yeah. show, great, great show. Do you want to t tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? Tell us yeah. how, what happened and you know, how that came about, why you decided to do it? Because a lot of people get opportunities to do things. Don't take the opportunities, right? How did that impact your life going and doing that show? And just tell us all about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the worst kept secret, isn't it, really? But I, I'd never seen the program, didn't know about it. I, I was building all our international business. Tom was mostly UK and he was great, a master of sales and marketing. And um, I was abroad and uh, I got a call from RDF television or whoever made the show. And uh, so, yo, your friend Jonathan James uh, has recommended you uh, for this. And I said, well, okay, tell me a bit about it. I went on to catch up telly, whatever it was, and I watched the program. I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I, I came from poverty, as I, poverty, as I said, uh, and had nothing. And so I like the concept of helping charities, communities, and so on. I was also already a behavioral profiler. I'd done Belbin, Myers-Briggs, Cambridge Myers, Thomas International, and was certified profiler for Thomas International. So I thought, it'd be really interesting to see how I deal with that. Because what, what happens is a bit like um, the apprentice, they take your phone off of you. Uh, you. It's only a couple of weeks, but you have to live on 68 pound a week and you can't ring your family and so on unless they give you the phone and you've got two minutes or what have you. And I remember the first day, actually, I got into this flat and I thought, oh, can I get something to eat? And on the way, there was this lovely little Greek cafe in, uh, in Peterborough. I was the only person they let do it in their own town because I wasn't there hardly ever, so no one knew me anyway, because so, <laughs> I was always abroad. But um, So I went and I had a coffee and bought the Times. I was sitting there reading it and I thought, shit, I've just spent a whole day's money. I had not had any food yet, kind of thing. Uh, but it reconnected me to what it was like when I had no money. So I really got into the program, understanding what some people are living like. And what they do is they choose the worst possible house they can find. So, you know, they ring around the estate agency. You've got a really crappy rental place, kind of thing. And, I mean, this place still had hairs in the bath. And I mean, it was like, Ugh. And every time I had, I had a, a shower, which was in the bath, because I didn't want to sit in the bath, every time I shower, the kitchen ceiling would pour with water below. 
it was horrible and there was mold in this saucepan on the cooker. So there's a bit in the program where I'm literally, and I think I've got a tough constitution, but uh, I was sort of throwing up. Um, but it, it, it did reconnect me. And, and what I realized was at that point that I decided to sell all my businesses because I realized that I did want to be there more. My oldest daughter was 12 at the time and my best man had sold all his businesses when he was, uh, his daughter was 13. And it's a really interesting age, I think, for any kid, but certainly girls with fathers. And he said, well, he said, I was right. I said, why you sold it? Or you're not that kind of guy, Ray. Why would you sell And he said, well, he said, I try to have these conversations with her, he says. And I say, how's everything going? Fine. What did you do at school today? Nothing. What's the matter with you? Stop picking on me, Dad, kind of thing. It's like, oh, I was didn't he? And he said, I realized it was because I had such snippets of time that I was interrogating her in my minute that I was going to allow. I wasn't there on her time. I wasn't there on her terms. I wasn't really listening for a proper answer. And he decided to sell the business. And he said, within months, he said, I'll drive in at school, because I had the time to do it. He said, I'll drive in at school. And she'd say something like, oh, Sally's a real cow. Kind of thing. Oh, really? Why is that then? And he said, <laughs> partly because I was driving to school he said I'm focused on the road he said and she'd say yeah, yeah, yeah. she'd be going through it and we get to school he said I hadn't said a word and she'd kiss me on the cheek and say thanks dad that was a great chat and he said sometimes you just need to listen sometimes you just need to be there and that made me think Rose is 13 in January and I sold my business on the 12th of December uh, just before she was 13 and uh, and it, it just changed. Eventually, I got to this balance that says, I want to do business, but I'm going to be around in the holidays. I want to do business, but I'm going to be there when they need me. And, and this work-life balance thing is, is, is not a real thing because it's, it's better to be there a thousand percent when they need you than to be there all the time and ignore them. So, you know, thinking because you're there, you're there is a misnomer. So, um, yeah, my whole journey has been this kind of, learning i i am a hungry to learn which really from the schools i went to um you know a, a teacher once called me when i was about 14 threw the rubber at me a bit like les brown but not for any more inspirational reason well it was inspirational really but she said green you're a waste of skin <laughs> and uh I thought, oh you know but you go and, and it's dangerous really if you if you haven't got the motivation to get beyond those things but you go back and you think about it and that sort of statement stays with you and it it sticks it's like they've thrown some negative shit at you it sticks and you got to kind of wash it off and you you got to recoat with positive and so on but actually that was a negative motivation that made me want to prove her wrong that combined with wanting to give my mum a life she would never have herself um, and then looking after my family and stuff drove me on yeah Brilliant, brilliant. And it certainly does, doesn't it? You remember those moments, I'm sure. Many people in the audience will remember those moments as you're talking about it. When you was on the, on, on the show, what did you, what was the outcome? What were the people like you met? How did it inspire you? Did that have an impact on you to want to sell your businesses? Did it get you yeah. to see things differently? No, absolutely. well, it, it was exactly what made me want to sell. But what I realized was that there are, that no one's bad. I mean, we hear about evil and, and how terrible people are but often they are a product of their upbringing, of their environment. And, you know, I love the saying that if you've got a plant that's not growing, you don't blame the bulb or the seeds. You look at the, 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 the environment's in. Is it getting enough light? Has it got enough water? Is the soil got enough nutrition? We change the environment. We don't change the bulb. So I tend to look at people and think everyone has the potential to be great, to be good, uh, if you can help them through that. So helping charities was important. As I said, it was the only time they'd let someone do it locally to themselves. Uh, no one knew me, so I could be pretty much undercover. Um, and because I said I would only do it if it was close enough for me to keep in touch with the charities, because I thought I knew myself. I couldn't, I couldn't be a part of their world for a week or two and then walk away. So uh, there was a couple of charities. Uh, one was Newark. It was an adventure playground for underprivileged children. And often they'd come home from school and it gave them a little uh, back from school straight to the adventure playground. And we often looked after them till about five or six o'clock. And this gave them a chance to just play and just be kids. Uh, and their parents could work because they didn't have to be there to pick them up at 3, 3.30 and so on. And we gave them a slice of toast and some jam. For some of them, that was the only food they were going to get that evening, you know. And so it was little things with helping them. That was a great charity. Uh, another one that didn't make the cut was a boxing charity. And um, I love boxing for the, the discipline, the respect. You know, you can't... You see people like Tyson Fury uh, and you see the kind of aggression... But, you know, from their first match at 14, 
they would have been measured on whether they shook hands, whether they bumped gloves, their whole uh, approach to it, their taught discipline. And, you know, if they're going to be a good boxer, they can't do drink and drugs because you cannot get that level of physicality if you're doing that to your body. So they start to honor. And then, you know, mums and dads would come in and say, I don't know what you guys have done to him. But he said, thank you. Or, or I said, it's time for bed. <laughs> OK, thank you, mum. Thank you, dad. And it, you can change people with some of these charities. So um, there, there was that one. And then there was Time Stop, which was a 16 to 25 homeless shelter, I guess. Um, and the sad thing in there was I realized that a lot of kids between 16 and 25 who are homeless, it's nearly always because mum or dad has got a new boyfriend or girlfriend and either they clash with them or sometimes it's as straight as mum or dad saying, this is my time now, you, you, you can join, you can get on the dole now, off you go. And uh, you know, I remember one guy, Dan, I was working with him and he said, you know, he said, I thought it was great, I got my dole money. He said, I had a drink and I had a good laugh. He said, but I'd spent it all in a day and a half, then I had nothing. He said, then I got cold, then I got wet. And then I thought, there's a brick there. The next person that comes down this path, I'm going to hit him over the head because even if I get arrested, I'll get food and shelter. And it's this Maslow's hierarchy of when yeah. it comes back to that, you'll do anything to get that. But if you can give them a new alternative and teach them how to get a job uh, or, or give them that self-belief or tell them that they can learn, they can't forget school, often... And I say this as someone who, education is really important. As I say, I've got an honorary doctorate in education, uh, so I have to be careful how I choose my words. But I don't believe anyone fails at school. A lot of people are failed by school. So if you're on any, any spectrum, if you've got dyspraxia, dyslexia, ADHD, so I, I deal with a lot of people in the trade sector, and um, a lot of them have ADHD. Now, why did they go into trade? Probably because they thought they weren't academically clever, but it was because... And, and if anyone's in here with ADHD, you're probably already thinking, how long is he going to talk for kind of thing? <laughs> 20 minutes and your concentration's gone. But the education system wants you to sit there for an hour. And if you suddenly get double maths, my God, just kill me now, you know. Um, <laughs> and I saw something recently that said, look at transport, how it's changed over the centuries from, you know, walking to horse and cart to early sort of steam or, or, or diesel vehicles and so on through to electric cars. Look at communication from speaking to writing, to writing letters, to posting those letters, to the early telephones, to the mobile phones, and even watches. They've changed dramatically. But 200 years ago, you were sat at a desk learning a lesson. Today, you were sat at a desk learning a lesson. And so part of what we do with trade is say, okay, and I've heard you say it earlier, you know, stop working on the tools or working on this skill, start working on the business, then grow that business, uh, and so on. And so... You know, it's about saying to people, you didn't fail at school, but that wasn't the right educational environment for you. You can learn stuff. And if you learn this and this and this, you can grow. So in a business sense, if you learn about finance and marketing and sales and managing people, how to attract, train, motivate and retain the best people, you could build anything. You know, I don't care if you're 20, 30, 50, 60. You know, Kentucky Fried Chicken wasn't started until um, Colonel Sanders was 65 years old. And the story is that it was his first pension check that made him realize, have I worked all my life for that? And then he worked into his 80s and built a multi-billion pound global business. So you're never too old, but you have got to learn some new shit because you are today. <laughs> you are today where you are based on your learning and attitude and behavior. 100% today. Look, I think that's been amazing. Should we give Mike um, a huge round of applause? I know there's so much more that we could go on, but I'm going to open up for some questions. Is that yeah, okay? Yeah. So if, who wants to ask a question? And with the best questions, we've got three books for the best <clears> questions. <throat> right? So uh, Sharon had a hand up first, then Camille. Then we go over here, right? Uh, so we start off with Sharon. Yep. That was absolutely inspirational. Thank, Thank you. you so, so much. I would love to know who your earliest role model was and are they aware now of, if, if they're still living, yeah. of your success? Yeah, so... I mean, my mum was my earliest inspiration, and uh, uh, and I still feel the hairs on my the hair growing on my head as I say it because she died a few years ago. I'd give anything to spend an hour with her. But the, the inspiration she gave me was more behaviourally. It was it, we'd go to bed. She'd work all day looking after us. There was uh, me, my two brothers, two sisters, and um, 
She'd be looking after us. And then when I was in bed, I'd hear her whirring away on a sewing machine. You know, they would bring stuff to the house and she'd make it overnight. I think, when does she ever sleep? And in fact, I don't think she did. But the first external role model was the guy I talk about in Secret Millionaire. And I wrote a letter to him in Secret Millionaire because I asked what, what most inspired you. And Les Hooper, the guy, was the guy who offered me the Saturday job. And so I wrote in this letter, and they said, you've got to do it. They took away my phone. I had nothing to do. So I sat one evening in the house, and I wrote this letter, and I posted it, and he would have got it. And um, I rang him and said, look, I'd love to come and have a cup of coffee, because this week it made me really realize what, how important you were to me. And I was already a millionaire by then. Um, and uh, he said, no, no, it's too much going on. And he was a proper proud man who I think didn't like the emotion of it. And, and <laughs> the letter was quite, it was quite sensitive which is not anyone who knows me would say i'm not very sensitive but but um so we didn't meet and then uh funnily enough last tuesday i met his son jerry who was the assistant manager in the same shop and uh jerry said uh do you realize how powerful that letter was to my father and so sometimes it pays back and he died about four months ago and he only had one drawer his ex-military man and he had his medals and, and everything else and my letter was in that one drawer and they read it out at his funeral. And so, you know, he did that for me. But don't ever, ever underestimate the power of a thank you in terms of what it can do for people that have helped you. So he was a great role model. I've had lots since I actively seek them out because uh, getting people who will give you a tough time, and I believe in tough love as well, you know, what I call bare-knuckle mentoring. So, <laughs> But there's a couple at the end of it if they achieve what they uh, get set out to. But, uh, Big round of applause there. I think that deserves a book, right? Yeah or no? Mm, it's a great question. Okay. Um, I think it was Camille was next, yeah? Thank and you, then we've got Laura, I think, had a hand up. And I think Carla might have had a hand up as well, right? Hi, Mike. Thank you very much for sharing your story and the elements of the bright side of your life, but also about the poverty thing. It's absolutely amazing and inspiring. My question to you is, what was the biggest ingredient from Mike, who was the delivery guy, to Mike, who made his first million in his life? Yeah, well, hunger will do that for you, actually. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and actually, it, it, a lot of, I have a podcast called uh, Success is a System, and where I interview people who have built successful businesses, what are the systems they use, the behaviors, and so on. And often, one of the things that comes through is need. I mean, if, you, if you're comfortable, that's the worst place to be. So if you're comfortable, make some commitments, either financially or to your kids, or become hung by your tongue, which is something I talk about, where it makes you uncomfortable. So, you know, I, I believe in written goals, but also believe in, in telling everyone about that. I'm going to have uh, a Bugatti by this age, or whatever it is you want, you know, uh, and tell them. But don't just tell the people who love you because they'll forgive you and they won't mention it even though they'll talk to each other about it. Do you remember? <laughs> tell the guy in the pub or the uncle or the cousin that is the one that's going to say, oh, yeah, we got that million yet or got that so-and-so totally. yet. So it, it's kind of need, need, if you like, drives. And for me, it was literally uh, food. It was then uh, not wanting to go without or be bullied for being uh, poor. I mean, who's had, ever had hand-me-down clothes before? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, even if no one knows, you know they're a hand-me-down. <laughs> and that's, that's not, that can be okay, but if you've got an older sister, that doesn't help. So when people <laughs> know that you've got your sister's blouse or a pink jumper on, that... So, I talked about motivation being negative. It often, find the thing that you can't not fix, as opposed to the lovely, nice reward that you might get if you, if you get off your ass. And, and often, you know, I used to have written on one of my walls, get off your butt, but it was B-U-T-T. So, it was, I, I would do that, Mike, but, and I'll say to my mate, have you done this? Well, yes, but, I know, but, but. But also, you've got to get off your ass. You know, what is going to make you when your favorite Netflix series that you've been watching and you can't wait to finish work to watch it, what's going to make you not watch it and do what you need to do? And I'm not saying you don't veg out occasionally. You know, I, I call it mindful mindlessness. So we have some time <laughs> where we are mindless. It's just like vegging out and enjoying doing nothing. But I've chosen when I'm going to do that. Uh, and it does not block my goals to what I want to achieve. Great Thank question. you very much. Big round of applause. And I think it's uh, Laura next over the front. There you go, my friend. Hi, Mike. Thanks Hello. so much. It's been amazing. 
so many takeaways here. It's, it's been brilliant. I uh, just wanted to ask you if um, you could give a single piece of advice to somebody starting a business today, what would that piece of advice be? Yeah, so if, if they're just starting, so I was entrepreneur in residence for two business centres for several years. And, and so what we'd have is we'd have... Um, what we call the hatchery, where literally someone's just got an idea, they haven't even started a business. And we take that and then we go from uh, the hatchery to fledglings and then go into growth and so on. Um, and often when people have got a business, they want to get it started straight away. Once it starts, it's like a snowball, snowball heading down the mountain. You can't stop it. The, the best time to get that planning in place, that structure in place, those goals in place, is before you actually start the business. Now, don't get me wrong, don't spend forever prepping because you'll always be planning and you'll never do anything. I believe in the American uh, saying of set off and course correct, you know, so do something. But uh, for me, if you had a month or a two month and you were thinking exactly what is it I'm doing, um, what do I want to achieve? What does this business look like in three to five years? Who's the best at what I want to do? What is it that they're doing differently, better, best that I can emulate? I want to go and be a customer of their businesses. Because all too often we, we look at competitors and, and we think, oh, they're crap at this, they're crap at that. Listen, they're making millions and they're making more than you are. So they're doing something right. And if you can, I talked um, about going into the shop and asking, talking questions, you know, learning something, going to the next one, learning something, going to the next one, learning something. So take the time up front to really research, to then set goals, to have a clear map. You know, in, in my book, I, it's Stuart Lawson, who is the, uh, my, my biggest commercial mentor, I guess. He would say to me, Mike, I'm head of commercial restructuring for KPMG, and he was a turnaround king. And uh, he would charge maybe six million pounds to go in with the team for a couple of weeks and do a complete strategic review. And um, he said, by the time we're finished, there's 20 folders of, of output, of research, recommendations, reports, uh, and so on. He said, but I wish they'd just get one page summary because if they let us do the 20 folders of thinking, but then focused on what we say the actions need to be or what they need to address, they'd get on with it. But because it's 20 folders, it won't be read. And if it's not read, it won't be acted on. And if it's not acted on, it can't possibly be delivered. And in two years' time, a new CEO will come in and they'll have another strategic review. And he said, so it just needs to be on one page. And I said, great, I'm going to do that. He said, no, it's terrible consultancy, Mike. He said, you can't charge six million quid for one page. I said, well, you might not be, but I'm going to do it. So I developed <laughs> using my behavioral profiling and some of what he'd said. It's a simple one page. What's your current state? Where are you today? What's your future state? Where do you want to be in three years' time? What are the areas you need to work on? People, marketing, sales, operation, finance, legal. And what action have we got to take in each of those segments to get from where we are to where we want to be? Draw a map. Make those goals smart. Get them written down. And then work every day towards each of those areas and the goals and activities. It's called transformational transition mapping. And a bit like a sat-nav, if you know the postcode, it can take you exactly there. Whereas if you say, I want to be successful, well, you know what? A pound more next year is more successful than you are now. If I say, I need to lose some weight, I do. Um, I want to lose some weight. And I said, someone said, how much do you want to lose? I say, I want to lose a stone. By when? Well, this time next year. Great, I can eat what I like for 11 months and I'll starve. You know? <laughs> or, or I need to lose a stone in a week. I'm not going to believe that, so I'm not going to start. But if I break it down into pieces. Uh, so it's, it's being realistic, smart, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timed. But then if you put that sat-nav in, that postcode in the sat-nav, it works the route out. And I sometimes say to my mentees, but what else does it give you? Yeah, well, we've got a map from where we are to where we want to be. But what else does it give you? I don't know, Mike, I don't understand. Well, let's think of it as roads, because we're talking about a map. When you leave here, or I leave here, and I put the postcode into my home, it tells me the 20 roads I need to go on to get there. But if there's 500,000 roads in the UK, it also tells me what roads not to go on. And that might be an obvious, yeah, of course it does. Yeah, but you know what? A lot of mentees, a lot of people in business, they know the 20 roads they should go on, but then they're, what, they're looking through social and they think, oh, bloody hell, what about Bitcoin? Or, oh, 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 oh what about um, uh, ChatGPT? What about, uh, what about property? What about... And I'm not saying all of these things can't be good tools along your journey, but if they're not going to deliver your goal, you either need to change your goal or you need to park them for a while, learn that, deliver that, achieve that, and then do that. 
Distraction. So to me, Great if class. I could sum it in two words, focus and discipline are the two core behaviors. To have focus, you need to have something to focus on. That's your written goals. But then discipline every single day to think about whether what you are doing is going to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Fabulous question. Fabulous answer. Big round of applause. Was there one last question? Was that you, Carla? Yeah, yeah, one last one. There you go. We're out of books, I'm afraid. But I'm sure they can go on Amazon and get that, can't they, Mike? Yeah. Of course. All right. <laughs> Right. I've already been on Amazon. It's already in the basket. So, oh, <laughs> thank well you. Um, hi. So that was really, really inspirational. And I do feel that when you've come from a place where you haven't had as much finances to start with, it does give you that hunger and that drive to move you forward. Um, but what I wanted to ask was, what personality type are you then on the Myers-Briggs? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know Myers-Briggs anymore, but uh, they, all go, they all default to the DISC, and some call yeah. it red, blue, yeah. yellow, uh, red, blue, yellow, green, mm -hmm. and sometimes you're an elephant, a lion, a dolphin, a monkey. I, I'm a D, a high D, driven, dominant, yeah. pain in the ass. <laughs> but, but one of the things I learned as a behavioural profiler, and, and, and it's part of what I do in education is I really, really, really want education to teach behavioural profiling at the, at the really base, four core uh, behaviour level. Because the first thing that a lot of people who aren't doing it for HR reasons um, get when they go on a behavioural course is, oh, so there are four different behaviours that no amount of training will ever change. They are who they are, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And it's this kind of like, okay, so, because most people believe if they were more like me, they'd have more friends. If they were more like me, they'd be more successful. As opposed to saying, I am who I am, and from the age of seven, it's pretty much set. So there's, a, there's a, an old saying, saying, show me a boy of seven, I'll show you a man. Of course, it's not, not male or female, but that's because your core behavioral traits are set in place by the time you are seven. Now, life-changing things can change that. Emotional intelligence can layer on top of that, but that's your core. So the first thing you've got to do is to love yourself despite whatever your behavior is, whether you think that's good, bad, or ugly, but then to appreciate other people that aren't like you can be an amazing part of your journey. In fact, one of the worst things you can do is recruit loads of people like you. 100%. You need those opposites. Uh, and so every behavior is amazing. So if you take a high D as an example, you know, you take uh, Bruce Willis, often in, in a movie, he's a character that charges in, you know, if there was a fire, he'd bust through the door and it'd save everybody. If reality, if that was in reality and he was a firefighter, he would put oxygen into that building. He would literally make it explode with fire and kill everybody. You know, I had a fire once in my house. We got the kids out. My wife and kids were in the car. Firemen come two, from two different areas, actually. They put a whiteboard up, a bit like that. They put it up and the, the, the sporting guy said, how many men you got? Seven. How many men you got? Six. Okay, what time you got? 8.02. What about you? 8.02 is good. Um, what else do you know? Well, we think it's electrical. Uh, any, anybody inside? No, nobody inside. And I said, well, let's just fucking get in there and put my house out. Like, my house is burning down. And, uh, and the guy looked me straight in the eye and he said, you said there was no one in there. I said, yeah. He said, we can rebuild a house. We can't rebuild a person. And, wow, and yeah, you know, thinking you can be a certain behavior, you'll waste a lot of energy and depress yourself trying to be someone else. Embrace the amazing person you are and find other people that bring the strengths that you think the business needs to come Hey everybody, Adam here, and I hope you loved today's episode. Hope you thought it was fabulous. And if you did, I'd like to ask you a small favor. Could you jump over and go and give the podcast a review? Of course, I'll be super grateful if that is a five-star review. We're putting our all into this podcast for you, delivering you the content, giving you the secrets. And if you've enjoyed it, please go and give us a review and talk about what your favorite episode is perhaps. Every single month, I select someone from that review list to come to one of my exclusive academy days and have lunch with me on the day, meeting hundreds of my clients. So if you want that to be you, then you're going to be in with a shout if you go and give us a review on iTunes. Please, of course, do remember to subscribe so you can get all the up-to-date episodes. Peace and love, and I'll see you very, very soon. Thank you.